Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. The rise of remote work, business closures, and empty commercial spaces has changed urban dynamics post-pandemic. Cities need to adapt their urban planning strategies to accommodate hybrid work models and reimagine the use of commercial space. Our sister podcast in Canada talked to Mary Rowe, Executive Director of the Canadian Urban Institute, who researched ways cities can rethink their strategies for resilience and adaptation. I do think it's a no-brainer to say to ourselves, you've got existing stock, existing assets, and you have to repurpose them in some kind of sensible way. And that may mean collectively rethinking and finding ways that we can each grease the skids to make it happen as efficiently as possible. Esri's Guan Yu investigates the role of location technology in innovating solutions to unoccupied commercial space. Hello, Mary. Hi, Guan. In your opinion, to what extent COVID-19 devastated our downtowns? Things that were challenging before the pandemic became even more so. And so one of the great things that the pandemic exposed is when you have a part of a city that is is restricted to predominantly one kind of use. It puts it at risk. It makes it not very resilient. And that's what we've seen in the downtowns that were predominated by commercial office use. As I suggest, it's exposed something that was already a vulnerability, only one kind of use happening in a downtown neighborhood. And if that use is compromised, as it was during the pandemic, or if people's habits change, as we find as we're recovering, um, it makes it makes for a really interesting moment in time where a neighborhood, this case downtowns, can transition into something quite different. What are some of the challenges you saw that our downtowns are half empty at times and may never come back to fully occupied? Well, what we need to do is let go of, you know, that whatever was before was normal or that it was the ideal that we want to return to, because there were lots of things about downtowns that maybe weren't that optimal. They weren't functioning as in a, as a healthy way as they could. Uh, and so what we saw, though, is that as you su- as soon as you start to restrict movement of people coming in, one of the things that downtowns thrive on is a lot of people. You know, I always quote Petula Clark because I'm of a generation that remembers that hit downtown it was my father's favorite song in the 60s. And that lyric is when you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown Downtown was a place you went to see something that was not like what you saw around where you lived. And you met people and you had an experience that was different. And somewhere in the last 40 or 50 years, downtowns became a place where certain kinds of people went to work. And I think that when you removed that large population, then all of a sudden you had people that needed supports of different kinds, uh, mental health supports. Um, they, They were accustomed to be able to find the kinds of resourcing, shelter support, um, uh, if they were challenged with food distribution or things like that, they needed other services, those would often be located downtown or adjacent to downtown. And those folks had no option. There was no place to work from home or shelter from home. And so what we've seen in downtowns across the country is a dramatic rise in people that need mental health supports who are inadequately housed or not housed at all. And, and they are finding themselves seeking some kind of shelter and support in downtown environments that can't provide it to them. And so that's had a cascading effect because then people suddenly feel they don't, you know, people don't feel that it's a shared space. They don't feel it's accessible to everyone. 
they don't feel that it's open. Mm-hmm. And that then deters people, other people from coming downtown to what Petula Clark said would wait for them if they got there. So that's a, a predominantly, uh, it's a visceral challenge that people are facing. And on top of that, as you know, in cities across North America, transit was affected. And that has a cascading effect as well. Because transit historically in North American cities, Esri knows this better than anybody from all the mapping you've done, um, brings people from outside the downtown core into it. And a lot of transit systems were predicated on that kind of flow in early in the morning and flow out later in the day. And suddenly now you've got a dynamic where people aren't flowing in in the same way that they used to, um, or they're flowing in at different times and in different cadences. And so that's one of the great challenges ahead now is how is transit going to adapt? Mm-hmm. I like the notion that uh, you you brought up. It's about reimagining or recreating this common shared places going forward, mm-hmm. knowing that we'll never be, you know, back at wherever downtowns are before COVID-19 time. Building conversions have always been a part of life in Europe, unused churches, becoming apartments. Do you think building conversions will become more of a regular thing in North America? Well, again, we've got to remember that North American cities, relatively speaking, are young cities. And so when you think of what you're really talking about there in terms of building conversion, you're talking about what is called in the business adaptive reuse. And in Europe, because those cities are denser, it's true in Asia too, those cities already have are much denser, more people living in them, and they've been, they've been around longer. And so the uses have changed. And so what was a church becomes a mosque, becomes a synagogue, goes back to being a church, that instinctively the designs are, have been more adaptable and flexible. And that's part of the challenge for us going forward. We inherited a kind of industrial model of city building, which was that these uses are, are singular uses and they're separated from other uses. Uh, and over the last two or three decades, there's been lots of rethinking of that. And we've seen it in cities where warehouses were converted into housing or they were cr- converted into creative spaces. Um, and now we're suddenly in a situation where we're saying, hey, maybe we don't need office spaces the way we had in the past. And so how can they be converted and into what can they be converted? If you think of buildings as one of the great assets that any city has, a whole lot of built form, built in the case of offices, maybe for only one particular use that reflected that time. Now we've got a moment and you had started to see this uh, in some developments. In Toronto, for instance, um, pre-pandemic, um, there's a shared commercial office uh, entertainment space and um, educational space at Young and Dundas where they realized, oh, this movie theater could show movies at night, but could be classrooms during the day. And that kind of imaginative thinking of these large floor, what are called floor plates in commercial buildings when we used to work in a certain kind of way. And now 20, 30 years later, we're working differently. Well, how can we be imaginative about that existing floor plate, transform it in some way? And that's part of what our work is about is encouraging the development community, the design community, and the regular regulatory community, the city governments to be really thoughtful and imaginative about what other kinds of uses are possible in these buildings, which are our great assets. 
Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what uh, your study, the case for conversion, is about. You researched six cities across Canada about their potential mm-hmm. to do some of these、uh, building conversions in downtowns. Can you share some、mm-hmm. of the key findings with our listeners? Yeah, I think. I mean, the thing is, there's no silver bullet for any of the challenges we're facing. So, conversions is not the solution to homelessness, and conversions of office buildings is not the solution to more vibrant downtowns. But it's it's a tool. It's part of a solution. And we looked at cities where we felt we could uncover possibility. Because with commercial conversions, there's a lot of you. Know, I'm sure if you've tried it, if you just have a casual conversation with somebody, you know, a business person who's used to working on the 34th floor or something, they'll tell you, "Oh no, 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 this can't be done. It's too expensive. Why would you even think of doing it?" And and so we wanted to try to have conversations where there was already some evidence that there was a willingness. And so we chose cities at a scale that we thought where there would be an openness to talking about it. And so we chose Victoria, Regina, Winnipeg, Ottawa, Moncton, and Halifax. And again, because we thought we could find a representative sample. You know, buildings are organized structurally; they can be described as certain typologies, certain kind of building. And also, there are ones that are easier to do than others. Like, why would you take the most difficult building, and then just be shut down quickly because it's not possible? Better to find out. Well, where are the buildings that have the potential for this? And again, this had started. You know, Europe's been doing it for some time, but you've got to remember that the built environment in Europe is is shorter, generally lower. So high, super, super tall high rise buildings. Um, may not be as suitable. The ones that have had commercial space, that's they're harder, more challenging、uh, to convert. Whereas smaller, more modest buildings of a certain height and a certain age sent, tended to lend itself. So that's why we started there. And what we wanted to do is, as you saw, the way we frame our reports, it's always the case we're making the case. So instead of outlining all the reasons why something won't work, we're about identifying. Look, here are the conditions that would enable something. To work, and what are some of the highlights of the conditions that are critical to even begin to think about the conversions? Well, we don't really talk about this. I mean, the, this report is a highly technical report, which I hope people will go look at at canherb.org, and then the, those of your listeners, lots of them will be people that have technical expertise to look at look at square footage and all the different kinds of mechanical considerations. That and that's why we had designers working with us on this, and we consulted broadly with professionals working in the field. I think some of this is just allowing people to be to imagine、uh, a downtown to be different. You know, there are all sorts of possibilities that we could be imagining for downtowns, and it doesn't have to just be that one use. So part of what we looked at were、um, there's the physical enabling conditions. So lower rise buildings of a certain age, of a certain size, where my office is right this minute, perfect a candidate for conversion. It's a what's called a Class C building, so it's not Class A office space. I think it's ten stories high. Each floor is about. Three thousand or four thousand square feet.、Um, services are all in one bank. So these are all technical considerations. When you start going eighty stories high with certain kinds of 
HVAC requirements and things like that gets much more difficult. So we thought, well, let's, to use a really overused phrase, we'll look for the low hanging fruit. And so part of it is you have to have some buildings that are class C. And generally in cities, you have A space, B space, and C space. And generally, and it has, and those are, those reflect affordability too. C space is cheaper, B space, a little bit better, A space, expensive. Part of what we're seeing now is a reshuffling of that. So if the C space is more amenable to being converted, then people that are businesses, not-for-profits, tenants that are in C space can maybe move up into B space. And then maybe some of the Bs move into A space. So I think a key enabling condition is that you have this distribution of a certain kind of typology as the first thing. The second thing is you need a regulatory environment that's not going to impede trying some things. So you need a willingness on the part of the municipal system or the provincial government, depends across the country, who has jurisdiction, to be willing to let the developer or the landlord, the landowner, try something to just, you don't have to do it everywhere. So there has to be a kind of willingness to try. And one of the examples of that would be what we're seeing happening in Calgary. Calgary has been in its downtown, had 400 empty office floors before COVID. So it's been in an economic state of transition for some time with the uh, ebbs and flows of the oil and gas industry. And so it had a jump start on other cities in that it realized it had these assets, these extraordinary buildings in downtown that were emptying out, emptying out. And so they had time to start to think about this. And remember, it has a financial implication for the city, any municipality, because a municipality is funded from property tax. They depend on the property tax and of the property tax, commercial property tax is much more lucrative than residential property tax. And so that's a challenge when you start to talk about converting from commercial to residential. Municipal officials say, wait a sec, I don't want to lose that tax base. So you have to have a kind of Ur- what what Calgary has is an urgency. There was no, like, there was no, uh, they couldn't wait anymore. They'd already waited a long time. So you had a municipal government willing to take some risks, and you had municipal staff who were willing to figure it out. And then they started to provide financial incentives to be able to help, you know, what are called early adopters. Once this becomes more general, the subsidies will probably become less needed because there'll be more demand. But in the early stages, you need, that's one of the enabling conditions is you need some kind of subsidy available to you. Um, So those are some key things that I think make it more possible to consider it. Right. One thing that's amazing about Calgary is that one of their office to residential project was from the beginning of inception to finish. It only took a year. Do you think that's replicable? This is one of the great challenges generally to dealing with the housing shortage is that it takes some time to get the your money assembled. It takes a long time to get the plans. It takes a long time to get approvals. Then a gazillion things change. And there's a bunch of bureaucratic thing, hoops you have to go through. And it's not for the faint of heart. And But the dilemma is it's not that easy to fix either. That's one of the benefits of working with an existing building. The greenest building is the one that's already built. So part of our argument here around environmental impacts is that 
it, it, it's, it, it when in doubt, it's better to not knock a building down and start again, uh, even though it's complicated and even though it's, you know, but these things have to be evaluated because some sometimes retaining a building is so costly and it might actually, you might be able to replace it with a more econo- uh, environmentally efficient building. But all those things have to be weighed up. There will be some buildings that will be candidates for conversion that could be done more efficiently than starting from the ground up. There'll be others, though, where you'll have existing tenant arrangements and it'll be trickier. Uh, so th- this isn't really a sim- this isn't like a simple thing. But I do think it's a no brainer to say to ourselves, you've got existing stock, existing assets, and you have to repurpose them in some kind of sensible way. And that may mean collectively rethinking and finding ways that we can each grease the skids to make it happen as efficiently as possible. Rather than being conservative, cautious, that'll never work, people. And the thing about Calgary is nobody could tolerate inaction any longer. They just had to get moving and try some stuff. I hear you. There's no cookie cutter solutions, but we should not wait thinking about it anymore because it's imperative and it's much needed. You'd love to think that we would build buildings that could be adapted in their use for the lifetime, for the lifespan of the building. If you think of that brilliant engineer, when they built the Blur Viaduct, they had the wherewithal to say, you know, someday there might be a subway and it might go across the river here. So we're going to build this bridge in such a way that the subway, if it's ever built, could go underneath this bridge. I always look at that story. That's R.C. Harris, I think, that thought that up. It was a brilliant piece of city building to anticipate ahead of time. We don't know what might be possible, but let's make sure we don't rule anything out. And I think that's got to be how we're thinking now about anything we do. Because even if we convert to residential, some of these office buildings now, maybe in 30 years, they're going to convert to something else. So you're asking for fundamental shift in our mind when we're thinking about designing the future of the city. And that shift cannot only just happen in architects and city planners, but also around policy makings and people who are living in this space. One of the criteria that called my attention in your report is that is that you said we need to think about equity and the environmental impact for Mm-hmm. us GIS professionals and who work in this uh, GIS geographic information system industry, we like to think about a place, uh, its physical assets, people, business, all in one picture. And that's what GIS does. It brings all of these layers of factors all together so that, you know, a common view can be presented to different stakeholders. How do you see the role or do you see a role of geoanalytics in uh, choosing which are the buildings for conversion uh, for the next project, as well as throughout this whole process, uh, can GIS play a role there? Yeah, it's, well, listen, the work that Esri does and the tools that you've put in place for people to visualize and be aware of all the assets around them is just invaluable. People have to know what the context is. And you're quite right. You can't convert a building in isolation. Like the last thing we need, this is where we made mistakes over decades, to put an office building in the middle of nowhere makes no sense. No services, no transit access, all that stuff. We got smarter about that, right? We started to concentrate 
uh, services. There years ago, there was a economic theory around clusters, and so we started to encourage people to co-locate because we know that the interactions that you have in urban environments is so important. And that means having a mix of people, mix of uses, and not being isolated. You know, we're not the NASA space station in the middle of nowhere. So I think that going forward, the kind of locational analysis that geoanalytics provides to make sure that you've got essential services, this is where the equity argument is critical, because you want to have spaces, places, that allow people to live, work, get access to the supports they need. The real solution for downtown is to make it a more diverse neighborhood so that you are living, working, seeing a play, getting your passport renewed, having a bagel. All that stuff can happen within a certain proximity so that you don't have to travel far. That's the real, that's the real opportunity we have here is to create complete, make downtowns complete neighborhoods. There's a story that has been told about what happened to lower Manhattan after 9-11. It had been predominantly a financial district, so it was really a a one-use part of town. And after the terror attacks, they had to figure out how they were going to rebuild. And there were planners in the city of New York who said, you know, I think we should rebuild lower Manhattan into being a more diverse neighborhood. We should introduce residential uses down there and housing and some public space I don't know if you were ever down there years ago, but I mean, it was like a very focused kind of people go, they get off the subway, they go to their office, they come back, they go down to the subway. And people were highly, highly skeptical about whether that would work. Um, And they did it and it worked. People did want to live down there and people did want to be able to go to a variety store or see a play or there were church, there were already a, a very, very famous church down there that then built a big elaborate ministry down there. And it it has become a really vibrant neighborhood. So I think that this larger scale analysis that you make possible through the tools that you put in people's hands and decision makers' hands so they can see the overarching context and all the different amenities, that's really what planning has to be. It should be all of that and not just focusing on the building. We do that at our peril. Let's hope we don't we don't make the same mistakes we made when we put those things up in the first place. Silos uh, is a word we hear a lot when we're, you know, talking about large scale planning, stakeholder engagement. In your mind, what are some of the silos that need to be busted in order for this kind of thinking to come forward? It's hard. I mean, that's why your tool is so important because you visualize in a way that breaks a silo in a nanosecond. This is fundamentally about the quality of places, which is rooted in a geography that has a social component, environmental component, economic component, spiritual component. And that is place-based policy work. And the, the challenge we have is that governments are not organized by place. They're organized by sector, public works, sanitation, social services, culture, they're not organized to look at the neighborhood scale. And so the great challenge for us and where it's important that people that are working in city building, we're constantly having to be the ones to say, but what are the cumulative impacts of these investments and these decisions, these locational decisions? What's the impact on culture? What's the impact on the indigenous community? How do we make sure that there's some kind of equity consideration so that there's fair access? This is a place-based discussion. 
Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. And thanks to Mary Rowe for explaining the critical role of GIS technology in repurposing commercial space. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.